Hi and welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and with me today to help mark Antibiotic Awareness Week, I have microbiologist Dr Susan Benson. Hi Sue, welcome. Hi Sean. Sue, last week we spoke about Howard Florey. This week I want to briefly ask about Nobel laureates even closer to home. Barry Marshall and Robin Warren discovered Helicobacter pylori right here in Perth and changed the treatment of gastric ulcers forever. Can you tell me a little bit about these nasty critters and why they're so hard to eradicate? It's a good question. This one came from left field um, because, you know, I don't do that much work in Helicobacter, but I think the, the story of the discovery is really interesting. And I think the subsequent evolution since then is fascinating because, um, I mean, he, he, he was a remarkable man to even come up with the idea. And it was an interesting sort of coincidence about um, the observations that Robert Warren made in the histopathology and then drawing the conclusion. And the discovery was fascinating because it got, I think the plates got left in the incubator for too long. It was like Howard Florey's penicillin on the culture plates. And and so it was that, and it was the Fremantle lab that he did the work in. So the Fremantle Where we micro worked. lab. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's in our lifetime, which is a pretty cool thing. Um, but the helicobacter bug's kind of an interesting bug to eradicate because um, it has been fairly resistant to treatment and it's always required a combination of drugs. And you give the antibiotics along with the proton pump inhibitor so that the acidic, it, uh, the pH changes and that helps the, the antibiotics work better. But <clears throat> I guess it ties in really nicely to Antibiotic Awareness Week because most of the time we don't think about helicobacter and antibiotic resistance, but it's increasingly difficult to treat helicobacter so that the resistance rates of, against clarithromycin, which has been one of the key drugs, has increased. So we're having more trouble treating helicobacter now and there's high rates of failure and you have to change to different, more complicated treatment regimes. So I think last week when we were talking about um, Nobel laureates and great scientific discoveries, the one's Ian Fraser. So he was kind of lucky in some way. Lucky, I mean, he's an incredibly smart fellow. Um, but to design a vaccine as a solution to an infection problem is really different than antibiotics because we said the issue was that Fleming, when he first discovered penicillin, he knew that resistance to penicillin develops very quickly in some organisms. So when Helicobacter was discovered in the 1980s and we took along the approach of using antibiotics, it's completely predictable that by 2016 we're having troubles with resistances because um, it, it, these are in our gut and when we take the antibiotics, we're exposing all of the flora to it. So it's absolutely inevitable that the bugs will share their genetic material. So the way we take our approach to antibiotics is fascinating, isn't it? Because every time we find another resistance, the next thing we do is look for another antibiotic. And I mean, that's like that quote of, you know, to keep doing something over and over again is pretty stupid. And that's what we're doing with antibiotics. I don't think we've tricked onto the fact that the bugs are actually smarter than us. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that remarkable. I love, um, you know, antibiotic resistance is not something to take lightly. But I'm, I'm really fascinated in the genetics. And I'm really fascinated in how we as a society have responded to the problem. We keep using this terminology of war warfare all the time. You know, we've got to kill the buggers and 
get out the big guns and when they sell a new antibiotics it's called forte you know so we get onto this whole idea and it's just not particularly smart um because i love this thing of a number of the antibiotics that we use to treat resistant bugs we call them the big big guns and the interesting thing is a lot of the antibiotics that we use to treat resistant organisms so not so much for gp usage but vancomycin is stable against mrsa and so people think oh my patients are really important i'll give them vancomycin but vancomycin is not a very effective antibiotic so if you've got a sensitive organism and you're treating them with penicillin versus vancomycin your chances of successful treatment are far higher with flucloxacillin so when you're dealing with somebody who could have staphylococcal sepsis, so these are you know, really sick patients before you've got your microbiology test back, the recommendation is to give both vancomycin and flucloxacillin because you've still got a reasonable chance that it's fluclox sensitive and it's a much better antibiotic than vancomycin. But in our crazy way, we don't give them the big guns. <laughs> um, and so, so I love this, this. So the small guns may be better than the big guns. In yeah, if you've instances. got a penicillin-sensitive staph aureus and you're giving it intravenously because oral penicillin's not that well absorbed, penicillin's a fabulous antibiotic. There you go. There you know? You go. So we don't think about that. I love what went into UI4 because... Um, I had a call on the weekend, I was on call for micro, and there was a patient who'd grown a proteus in their urine, and it had come back as being sensitive to moxol. And um, the team had decided to leave the patient on augmented fort, because you know the patient's in CCU, and forte means strong. Um, and they're cardiologists. <laughs> yeah, but they'd already had a report that said it was a moxol sensitive. And it's interesting if you know a little tiny bit of chemistry is that if, when you use augmented UO4, you're using 875 milligrams of penicillin twice a day. The clavulanic acid you don't need in this case because yeah. the organism's sensitive. But if I was treating you for uh, with oral amoxyl, I'd be giving you 500 milligrams TDS yeah. because it's got an eight hour half-life. So, and if you had any sort of serious infection, I'd be giving you up to a gram QID. So when I use augmented UO4, I'm giving half the amount of amoxyl, which is the active compound. So, I mean, we're doctors, aren't we? We're supposed to know science, but that just doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Because when we use augmented UO4, we're giving half the amount of amoxyl and we're exposing them to the toxicity of the clavulinic acid unnecessarily. Yeah. But because it's forte, and it's been a long time since we've studied antibiotics, we go, oh, I want that forte one. <laughs> Classic. So we talked last week about what GPs can do to prevent resistance. Can you tell me, are, are there any new antibiotics or other antimicrobial agents in the development pipeline? Um. It's not a completely barren chest. There's a new variation of vancomycin coming out. There's various combinations of cephalosporins and the equivalent of clavulinic acid. Um, but it isn't. None of them are panaceas. They're all more expensive, and they tend to tend to be a, a more toxic. So there is no panacea in the pipeline. Mm. And to some extent, I think we should pay attention to that because. Uh, some of the most resistant antibiotics, so the, the resistant bugs, the ones of the uh, carbapenem-resistant gram-negatives, it's an interesting thing. That resistance is a remarkable resistance because 
um, the resistance is on a mobile genetic element, so it doesn't have to be within the DNA of the organism. And that mobile genetic element includes resistances to all the antibiotics. So there's just a vacuum cleaner that's got all of the different keys to it. And what's really cool is that it, on that same resistance cassette is the resistance to quaternary ammoniums, which means that an organism that has that material doesn't necessarily have to be exposed to an antibiotic for it to have a survival advantage. It could be in the sewerage and exposed to detergents and it will have a survival advantage. Yeah. So the genetic complexity and the genius of when you've got so many thousands of organisms out there is pretty remarkable. So I think it comes back to us thinking about the days before antibiotics, before we're doing it out of panic and being thoughtful about what we're doing. I guess one of the things I've been interested in is looking at microbiology testing. And so there's some interesting figures from Australia that our rate of doing urine testing is going higher than our per capita growth. So we're doing a lot of testing. And uh, when you look carefully at that, a lot of our testing, there's a suggestion that our testing is being done unnecessarily and that we're not taught particularly well how to interpret those results. So the concept of asymptomatic of the patients who can have an abnormal urine sample and they're actually healthy and the result shouldn't be acted on because you shouldn't have done the test in the first place. But also, I, I'm not sure that we're teaching well enough that when you read a urine result, because anecdotally, when I take telephone calls about results and when medical students present cases, they tell me what organism is growing, but they leave everything else out of the report. So a urine example has got, a urine result has got a microscopy field in it that has got white cells and epithelial cells. And the white cells tell you whether there's inflammation there. And the epithelial cells tell you whether there's a possibility of contamination. And it's a quantitative culture down the bottom to how much is growing. So when we look at a urine result, when we think before we do the test, and when we look at a urine result, you should look to see that there is inflammation there, that there's not epithelial cells, and ideally it's an E. coli, because other organisms may be there and not be pathogens. But I'm guessing that most people just look at the antibiotic deficiency, um, antibiotic down the bottom, so that if a sensitivity is written down there, they think, oh, I've got to give the patient an antibiotic. So I think we contribute to that, because I think a lab report is quite complicated and we're, we're sending out lab reports the same way as we did 20 years ago. If we stop to think about it, we could reformat the report that prompted people to remember these things and help people understand a little bit more. And even put a couple of prompts in there before people default to the augmented duo force. <laughs> the big a, guns. <laughs> there's another level of complexity in here as well, because when you do a test, the trouble is, Again, it's sort of not helped by medical shows. And when we think about this, we think that we're making a single decision in time and it's a perfect decision. And we know that diseases occur over, an illness happens over a period of time. So a woman might have, you know, a couple of days of symptoms or might have been going for two weeks and they might show up. And we do an assessment at that time. And this situation, that clinical situation could change. And we're waiting, you know, one to two days to get our results back or three days if it's a weekend. And that's quite a complex 
process to manage. And it means the different decisions you'd make at different points along there are going to be different as to whether you've got information or not. And I'm not sure that we often think about that particularly well in medicine, that these are tricky decisions and people are evolving over time. And um, sometimes it's completely okay to not act on an illness because the natural history is that it's going to get better and that we explain to patients that the situation could change. Most of you do this in your day-to-day -day practice. The situation could change and we'd review the situation then versus the ability to pick up somebody who's sick when they first come in and it's you know that you need to act at that point and you make a smart decision. So they're kind of hard. It's hard to convey what we do in medicine. It's not split-second decisions. Mm, yeah, art and the benefit of time. Yeah. I totally agree. You know, can we just turn the volume down a little bit? Mm. Um, mm. Can we turn the volume? I think there's this fascinating two really loud competing voices at the moment. And one of this is the surviving sepsis campaign that tells us you're all going to die of infection and you'll die, go and see the doctor and get antibiotics quickly. It's not what, what's wrong with you. Or what, and the other one is we're all going to die of antibiotic resistance, so stop using antibiotics. And you just imagine, wouldn't it be good if we could run a, co a conference and get these two quite polarised people who are all screaming that their problem's the worst in the world, get them together and say, yes, some people do die of infection, and yes, we should do that, but an antibiotic saved their lives, that's great, but some people don't die of infection. And I don't know, is it just, is this like Donald Trump era where every message has just got to be blaring out through a loudspeaker that it's simple, vote for Trump or vote for Hillary and the problem's going to be fixed, you know? Don't give antibiotics, give everybody antibiotics. I, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's fascinating for us to get our heads around it collectively mm. as to how we do it. Excellent. Look, thanks very much for your time, Sue. Um, that's really informative and it's given me plenty of food for thought. And um, thank you for coming in. Thanks for sharing it. When we spoke at the conference, I thought it was fantastic because I got to hear other people's points of view and I think that's something we probably should be doing a little bit more is the specialists getting out of their silos and coming to the coalface and understanding that people don't do things for the wrong reasons. It's usually there's competing demands and there's explanations for it and I suspect we'd be doing a lot better to have these kind of chats more often and it should probably be a 50-50 you telling me how you see the problem and and, and me hearing hearing that as well as going, oh, that's curious. I haven't thought of that before, so yeah. I welcome it. Thanks. Next time, I want to listen to you. No, thanks, Sue. I'd be more than happy to. Yeah. <laughs>